0: Security issues can often be traced back to small misconfigurations in a database or cloud service, or an innocent code commit. OpsHelm is a security platform that's oriented around identifying and fixing these issues. Kyle McCullough is the co-founder and CTO of OpsHelm, and he has deep experience in backend and data engineering. He joins the show to talk about the challenges of security incident monitoring, prioritization, and response. This episode is hosted by Tyson Kanofsky. Tyson is the co founder and CEO of AutoCloud, an infrastructure as code platform. He is originally from South Africa and has a background in software engineering and cloud development. When he's not busy designing new GitOps workflows, he enjoys skiing, riding motorcycles, and reading sci fi books. Check the show notes for more information on Tyson's work and where to find him.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Software Engineering Daily. I'm your host, Tyson Kunowsky. In today's day and age, cloud security has never been more important. Just a couple of days ago, I read about yet another data leak from a large financial organization, and this particular leak was caused due to a database misconfiguration which ultimately exposed tens of thousands of people's personal identifying information to the world. Sadly, news like this has become the norm with organizations of all shapes and sizes, from casinos to hospitals, regularly suffering at the hands of bad actors. My guest today, Kyle McCullough, is the co-founder and CTO of a company called Opshelm, who are taking a novel approach to preventing cloud security incidents from happening in the first place through near instantaneous automatic remediation. Kyle, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Tyson.
2: Really excited to be
1: here. So Kyle, before we dive into things, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your software engineering and security backgrounds.
2: Yeah. So I guess right off the bat, I have to out myself. Definitely a software engineer by trade, but I've never had security in my title officially. So you've got the wrong co-founder today, unfortunately, but I've been pretty <laughs> close to security my entire career. So I'll give you the sort of software engineer's perspective. But my background is primarily a sort of backend engineering and maybe what we might today call data engineering. and you know, focusing on distributed systems and databases and APIs and that sort of thing. And, you know, sometime in the past 10 years, I've sort of become a bit of a reluctant infrastructure engineer as well. So definitely have a bunch of cloud operations experience and things like that, and have spent quite a lot of time either adjacent to security as a result of that, or, you know, on the implementation side of various security initiatives. So hopefully I can provide some interesting color in terms of what that's like as a software engineer.
1: Well, I think that's a great segue. So you think about almost all major companies today that are running on the cloud with so much choice in terms of what they can do, which correlates if they don't have the right expertise to mistakes that can be made. What do you think is missing from today's existing security tooling and the solutions out there like Orca, Wiz, and the others? How do you differentiate from those modern security platforms? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, One thing that's become apparent over the past
2: handful of years is that security tooling does not have to be terrible. And I think, you know, all of those companies that you just mentioned have done a great job providing tooling that is easy to use, nice to look at, makes onboarding, you know, relatively straightforward. But one gap that I think has become increasingly apparent is that, you know, your visibility is only as useful as your response to that, right? So, you know, if you have an alarm system in your house and it tells you you've left your garage door open, that's only useful if you go and close the door, right? So... Visibility is great. It's useful. But you also need the other half of that for that to really be effective. And I think that's the primary thing that we're seeing with, you know, the breaches, like you've just mentioned, is, you know, many of these things are caught and can be found in the tooling. You know, if you go and retrospect that, you might see that, oh, yeah, this was open for days, weeks, months, whatever the case may be. And the information is there,
1: but the response was not there, unfortunately. Why do you think it takes so long to come up with a response? Is there just too much signal and noise to cut through? Too much priority? Why does it take so long for us to stay abreast of all of these issues? It's probably a
2: combination of things. You know, I've seen dashboards, you know, from those various providers that you mentioned, for mm-hmm. some very large companies, and you log in as an engineer and you see, oh, I have you know two hundred thousand findings. What do I do with that? I'm a busy individual with meetings and feature work to do and all these various competing priorities. And I log in and I see I have a backlog of 200,000 things that, you know, any of which could cause one of these catastrophic, embarrassing issues. It's really hard for me as an engineer to go in there and say, I'm going to do this one today. I'm going to pick this off the backlog and work on this. So I think prioritization is
1: definitely a challenge,
2: especially at that scale as a platform provider. How do you pick out of that two hundred thousand or you know however many it is, but that's an incredible challenge, and I think the ultimate truth there is that there is no magic formula, and I'm always very suspicious of these anyway, but there is no magic formula for prioritization that is like you know the best or the most accurate right and if there were, and if anybody's selling that, it's like it should be open for all of us to examine right because priorities are very different between organizations, and what may be very important for one organization is not necessarily important for another and That provides a challenge to these platforms to provide a good, consistent, and meaningful prioritization to their consumers, to their users. So I think that is key to the issue at the moment. But I think the other end of it really is that prioritization is hard, but also prevention is better, right? So we shouldn't have to necessarily
1: prioritize all of
2: these issues. It'd be better if they didn't exist in the first place.
1: Let's talk a little bit about automation. When it comes to automation. What does proper automated response look like? And given all these different signals, all this noise, all these priorities, why should we trust it? Yeah, great question. So I think there's an ideal state in the future, but I'll talk a little bit about
2: how we're thinking about it and how we're approaching it and how we're trying to sort of broach that trust subject a bit. And we can dig into the ideal state later a bit if you'd like. But in terms of you know what's possible now, right? no cloud provider really provides us hooks into their platform to do prevention, right? Prevention is handled through IAM policies and being very restrictive with permissions and things like that up front. And, you know, sort of practically speaking, it's very difficult for an organization to maintain any velocity if things are off by default. So I think what we see typically is users, tooling, services, whatever the case may be, they tend to be over permissioned, right? So that allows engineering teams to keep building and, and working that allows services that are deployed and, you know, enabled to function without constant tweaking. And, you know, we've all sort of been there, I think, trying to enable a new service or deploy a thing. And you spend three or four hours going back and forth with an IAM policy trying to get it tuned just right. And I think that sort of has created a bunch of fatigue in all of us that are consuming, you know, AWS, GCP, whatever, that we just sort of maybe unintentionally, I would say often unintentionally, uh, you know, over permission things. So that kind of leads me to Automated response, right? So, what we are trying to accomplish now, especially at Opshelm, but I think you know, in terms of any sort of automated response, is detecting things as soon as possible, being as event-driven as possible, and capturing you know interesting, useful state about something that's just occurred, and then res- responding to it in real time as the engineers who are working on that are doing that work. So, I like to think of it as guardrails or policy enforcement, but kind of at a slightly different layer than I am. So, it is after the fact, but it's intended to be real-time enough that it feels like it's before. So, you know, I use the word prevention, but effectively, it's, you know, if we're honest, it's not really prevention. It's just immediate response. And, you know, in terms of what that looks like, I think it really depends on how you build it. And the way that we think of it is it should be as surgical as possible. And I think by being surgical and very fine-grained, knowing that The tool is only going to change values that need to be changed, for example, in a configuration. So if we were to take an example here, let's say we have a firewall group that's applied to some service. Maybe it's a database and somebody pushes out a rule that opens that database up to the Internet. This could be potentially catastrophic. you know. So we might want to respond to that immediately and say, we're going to revoke that particular ACL in the firewall. And... You know, what might go wrong here is, oh, we revoke all the rules, right? That would be bad. Now internal services can no longer connect to our database and we have an outage and downtime instead of being sort of, you know, taking a big hammer approach to it, right? We want to be very surgical and just remove the offending configuration. And the advantage to this and being this sort of fine-grained about it is we can always put that back to, we know exactly which ACL violates the rule that we're trying to enforce. And we can remove it. But if we actually need to put it back, we know exactly what we've removed as well. So we're trying to build trust by being very specific about what we change and also being very open about how that works, right? So, you know, if you want to permission our tool to operate in that way, you know that we only need permissions to change that one configuration option, right? We don't need permissions to create new databases or, you know, we don't need permissions to change things that are completely unrelated to that. So by constraining the scope, makes it much easier for us to, one, if we ship a bug, to not change something that we didn't intend to change if we're not permissioned for it. But then two, by being open about that, our customers know that this is the only thing that could change here. And I think that's really the only way in this sort of mode of operation to build that trust. And you know, in the ideal state, it would be prevention, right? So we wouldn't need that
1: level of trust, but this is kind of where we are at the moment. I can really hear your backend and DevOps experience shining through in response to that question. And I'd love to talk in a little bit more depth about what we as an industry can learn from both backend development and operations in regards to security. But before we get there, I want to double click. You make a really interesting and compelling point, and I think the case is pretty valid. What else should the security industry be adopting in terms of automation of this kind? Sure. So, you know, obviously, we talked about prioritization as a
2: challenge just a moment ago and that's only going to get harder and the reason that gets more difficult as every day passes is that the landscape is changing often dramatically you know between any two given days you know think of reinvent every year for example you know that's a big day in in the cloud industry right how many new apis were just released how many apis were updated how many new things do we now have to worry about the fact that the surface area is constantly expanding means that we always have more things to pay attention to, right? And that's just on the platform side. If we think about this in terms of, you know, somebody that is actually trying to attack or breach a system, they're using automation on their end, right? So it's only fair to fight that with automation. It doesn't make sense to fight that with people. There's just too much signal for any human to sit down and watch those events and monitor every system and and sort of You know, look at everything that's coming through and make a judgment about it. So I think the only way to make this problem surmountable is to approach it with automation and use that as, as a tool. It's available to us. We need to adopt it and take it seriously and apply, you know, some of those practices that we've applied in the ops world over, you know, the past 10 plus years to security. I think that's the only logical path forward in a lot of ways.
1: Okay. So back to your background in ops and backend experience. What else do you think the security industry can learn from ops in this regard?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, automation first, you know, if we think of kind of the DevOps movement, which, you know, is not a term I'm I'm particularly fond of, but I think some lessons did come out of it. And we see, you know, very large scale companies with sophisticated engineering teams, you know, they now employ software engineers to do infrastructure work and they build internal platforms to provide infrastructure to their internal customers, right? Especially at the highest of high scale companies. And I think the interesting thing about the way those companies approach it is it's a software-driven operation. You know, they do things like provide immutable infrastructure, right? That was a popular drum to beat several years ago, or you know, sort of stateless by default. And you know, you, you force your state down to certain layers. But what that's led to, for example, in the ops world, you know, if you have a server that's misbehaving, you know, if anybody's still running servers. Mm -hmm. By default, you don't jump on there and like rerun Chef. Nobody really does that anymore. What you do is you just terminate that and, you know, spin up a new instance that is spun up from that, you know, default configuration. And then you ship that. There's no sort of, well, you might retrospect it and try to figure out what went wrong, but you don't necessarily leave it there to think about what's going wrong. You remove it from circulation, from production, right? And put in a new stamped out from the the gold master, right? You put in a new instance and, and replace it. And I think that sort of respond by default with automation and kind of self-heal a little bit is what I'm going for here, right? That's the thing that I would love to see adopted, the sort of
1: snapping back to a baseline or a guardrail, however you want to think about that. Given your background and your familiarity with the infrastructure as code, which is something that's near and dear to my heart as well, when you think about security in the context of infrastructure as code and some of the remediation work that you're doing, how does infrastructure as code factor into this? So, for example, how can we better integrate security into the dev lifecycle, ensure that our infrastructure is secure and our live cloud workloads are secure? What does that happy nirvana state look like to you? How can we achieve it? Yeah, it's a great
2: question. So, this gets into the prevention bit a little bit. And this is where I get excited. So, obviously, one thing infrastructure as code does for us is it writes everything down, right? You actually have to Create that configuration, and I think that's really valuable one thing that that does that is I think very important and is maybe often overlooked is it's it's a great way to obtain some information about intention what was the engineer that was configuring this thing intending to do you know we have commit logs we have the actual configuration and we can see that before it's applied and that's valuable information that especially gives us a hook into a sort of prevention step right we can Look at that before it's applied and make some judgments about it and potentially take some action in response to that. And that might mean something as simple and straightforward as a CI check that blocks a merge and prevents a deployment. Or it could be even an automated response that issues a patch back to that change and says, you want to do this instead, potentially, right? And I think that is incredibly powerful. But there are some gaps there, right? So, one problem with sort of infrastructure as code with respect to this massive security challenge of keeping the actual cloud configuration within those guardrails is that things can change outside of your configurations code, right? So you might have everything terraformed, you know, very rigorously with incredible standards applied to it, but that doesn't necessarily stop somebody that's permissioned from going into the cloud console or via one of the APIs and making a change and circumventing that, right? So it's an incredibly powerful tool, but we have to recognize that it is not the only actor in this sort of playground here. We have to still pay attention to what's deployed. And one thing I always like to tell people is, you know, infrastructure as code is great and I think we should be adopting it. However, the only thing that really matters at the end of the day is what you have shipped. What is the actual configuration that's deployed, you know, not what did you intend to deploy? Not any of those things really not What is the configuration even on the main branch in your repo? It's like, what is the actual configuration that's out there? That's the most important thing. We have to be paying close attention to that. And because the way, you know, Terraform, for example, the way that works is not by being a layer in between you and the cloud provider. It's sort of, it's on top and it's a very point in time sort of thing. You know, you apply a configuration and updates are made potentially, but it's not an active thing necessarily. So... We have to be aware of that as infrastructure and security engineers, that just because the Terraform repo says one thing doesn't mean that that's actually true.
1: It's a really interesting point, which is on one hand, a lot of organizations from a best practice perspective require infrastructures, code such as Terraform, Pulumi, the CDK, whatever they happen to be using, they require their development to be done through those mechanisms. Yet on the other hand, you have folks that have admin privileges that can go into these cloud service providers and the portals, click around and change things. So the ideal state would probably be, it sounds like, to take away this console right access and have everything done via infrastructure as code. How do we de-risk the challenges that you've brought up here? Because it sounds like, despite best intentions at the end of the day, if folks have access and are making changes outside of prescribed workflows, it can yield to all kinds of serious security problems. It's
2: so true. And I swear I'm not funneling you into a sales pitch here, but I'll talk about <laughs> this as as an ops engineer for a moment. Putting that hat on, I think about what is the cost of an outage, for example. You know, we often think about reliability and, you know, competition with security sometimes. And I think there's a, a trade-off here some, you know, in some cases where sometimes you just have to accept the security risk in order to, you know, achieve some, you know, mitigation of an incident, right? And I always ask anybody who who says that they are Rigorous Terraform users. Do you have anybody in your organization that's permission to go into the console and make changes? I guarantee it's not only the Terraform user that has those permissions, right? And one of the reasons for that is, let's say you are having a production incident and you have a service that's down, or maybe, maybe your entire platform is down. It's a terrible situation to find yourself in. And I honestly, as much as I'm a huge Terraform and infrastructure as code advocate, I am the first person to say, if production is down, log into the console, change what we need to change if that is the quickest way to restore service. Because we have competing priorities here. It's easy to say when you're not in the middle of an incident that, oh, we should make this change in Terraform. But I've seen Terraform code bases that take on the order of hours to run, mm-hmm. to do a full plan and apply. And these are organizations that are you know, struggling under the weight of that infrastructure that they've created. and the idea that they might have to wait several hours to roll out a fix to restore production is laughable, right? Nobody would actually commit themselves to that. So the ultimate outcome there is people still have access to production in order to be able to make those emergency fixes. What if your CI provider's down or or what if you're, you know, if you're mm-hmm. using Terraform Cloud, what if you're unable to access that for some reason or if it's down? There are also those simple practical, you know, concerns. So I think I come back to The sort of, you know, active prevention response here is the complement to this problem, which is we still allow manual changes and human access to these systems, but having a guardrail in place to prevent any sort of egregious mistake, right, is kind of the check and balance system that we need to make that safe. So we still want to push things by default through our infrastructure's code pipeline and make sure that we're following those practices. But we also want to detect when we've deviated from that. And if that deviation is a valid deviation, maybe we want to port that change back to our infrastructure's code to close that loop. I think that's a valuable thing to do and encourage as well. But it would be very hard for me to tell anybody that they should you know,
1: not allow that. Talk to me a little bit more about the interplay between infrastructure's code security remediation and live cloud security remediation. Because if there's a problem on the cloud, to your point, you want to fix that right away and not spend hours waiting for pipelines to run and changes to get applied. These are incredibly urgent fixes that need to be applied as soon as possible. But at the same time, on the infrastructure's code side of things, ultimately, you need to go and patch up, say, some Terraform code. How does Opshelm have plans in the future to not only be able to do what you're doing now, which is fixing things as soon as they occur, but also going and fixing that infrastructure's code to make sure that the state is in sync And both sides are secure.
2: Yeah, great question. So the short answer there is yes, we do have plans to address that very directly, actually, in in exactly that way. You know, we want to monitor the configuration that's actually deployed, but also tie that back to the infrastructure's code configuration, which, as I'm sure you know from your background, that's this is not a simple task, and there are many challenges with respect to doing that reverse mapping. However, we do plan to address that, and I think you know, the way we think about it is we detect a configuration that we don't, you know, that violates some policy, whether or not that's a an out-of-the-box policy we provide or a, you know, a custom rule that one of our customers has implemented. We still want to detect that. We still want to potentially respond to it, but we also want to be able to close that loop. So thinking about it in terms of almost in the same way that, you know, Pulumi or Terraform or any of these tools looks at the state of the world, right? They have the configuration that's written down. Here's what I intend to do. They have the state file, which is sort of the last known state that was applied. And then they also look at the remote resources as well and try to figure out the diff, right? What is my delta and how do I how do I bring everything to the desired state? So, we're sort of thinking about it in those same terms and implementing it in that way. So, we might first make the change if we're configured to do that and our customers have permissioned us to do that. But then we also want to monitor the rest of the life cycle and make sure that eventually the infrastructure as code is brought up to, you know, compliance and that whole, that loop is closed. Right. So kind of a long running, like living process, continuously looking at that and making sure that, that things are, you know, moving in the right direction
1: it sounds like a very comprehensive approach that handles both sides of the problem. And just for my own curiosity, when you think about auto remediation and security fixes on the cloud that a tool like OpsHelm is able to help out with, what are some examples of the problems that you're able to detect and remediate as soon as they're found?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. So to back up a little bit, I would actually describe, you know, we're talking very much about security right now, but I would actually describe what we're building at OpsHelm. And, and I think, you know, any solution along these lines, what we're building is very much a policy enforcement engine. And, you know, those policies in in our case are often focused on security, but they could be any sort of cloud configuration. You know, for example, you at your organization may have a tagging standard and you want to ensure conformance with that, or you may have certain cost, you know, controls that you want implemented. Maybe you have no use for GPU based compute and you want to prevent anybody from using that, or Maybe you have certain operational standards that you want to adhere to. So maybe you have services that need to be available and somebody spinning down an an auto scaling group to zero or one instances is something that would be very bad in your opinion at your organization. Any of those would be the sorts of things that we might want to enforce at this layer. And, you know, it could be things, you know, if we want to bring it back to security, it could be things as simple as the, the open S3 bucket or the, you know, the database, that is internet accessible or, you know, SSH that's open up to the world or or some of these things that come up often uh, over and over again because default configurations are set up in, in a way to make everything easy, right? And we want to be able to spin up a service quickly. So we just open it all up. It's often those things, but it can be more complex than that. I'll say the way we're prioritizing the way that we are building this out is, you know, what are the black and white issues, the things that are very sort of, you know, the debate's over, like don't put your database on the internet by default is a pretty good. And, you know, I know that there might be reasons to do it, but don't put a bunch of PII in, in an S3 bucket and then make that world readable. I think these debates are are mostly over, like by default, we shouldn't be doing that. So we're sort of prioritizing based on on those things. And then, you know, things that we can actually auto remediate. Unfortunately, you know, the nature of some of the problems requires a human in the loop. You know, it requires some action to happen or some coordination to happen. And full automation isn't necessarily possible, but we can get, you know, part of the way or most of the way there. We think about those as well, but mostly thinking about in terms of what things can we completely remove from the list of potential problems.
1: To your point, some of those common mistakes, I'm guessing, probably cause the vast majority of all security issues on the cloud today. And I'm curious though, what are examples of harder problems that you might not be able to detect or fix using auto-remediation? Yeah, I'll give you a
2: few examples. So One that I like to give, for example, is anything that's destructive. So sort of philosophically, stepping back a little bit, the way we've approached automation is anything that we automate should be reversible because we want to be able to, you know, the system can be wrong, or you may actually really want to do something that the policy says you shouldn't be able to do by default. And having an override button there is is very important. So, you know, by default, anything that is a Permanently destructive action is something that we might not proactively automate. And to give you an example there, let's say you have, you know, a database in AWS. Maybe you're running an RDS instance and for some reason you've configured some automation to terminate a database cluster or an instance. You can snapshot that and, you know, spin up a new instance based on the last, you know, snapshot state of that database, right? But you can never get back the original database. And, you know, the same applies to any other sort of stateful thing in AWS, right? Or in GCP for that matter, you know, if you go and destroy an entire S3 bucket or terminate an EC2 instance or an EBS volume, you can never get back the original. And that's an important thing to be aware of in in the context of automation is, you know, can I undo this? And sometimes you can't. And being aware of that changes how you think about that and how you approach that. You don't necessarily turn that on by default. I think another example of a difficult to remediate thing that's maybe a little bit less extreme here is let's say encryption at rest you know all of the cloud providers support you know block storage being encrypted at rest right and we want to do that by default in most cases but there's no way to migrate a uh, an unencrypted volume to an encrypted volume live the only way to do it at least as far as i'm aware in in uh, you know aws gcp is you know you snapshot the volume and you turn that into an encrypted snapshot and you can create a new volume from the, the last known state. There's no like live encrypt a volume. So that is something that would require a human in the middle to say, okay, I've got an encrypted snapshot, and now I need to make this, you know, the live volume that I'm using. And at the end of that, there's a destructive action of, you know, get rid of the old unencrypted one. But there's also that coordinated switch of, you know, let's say I have a server and there's a volume attached to it. I can create that encrypted snapshot, I can attach it to my instance, I can mount it, you know, and then I can actually do that switch live and and unmount the old volume and detach the old volume from the instance and then destroy it. But there is some coordination required in the middle there. And if you're only operating, you know, at the cloud configuration level, for example, your automation doesn't have any any ability to get into the instance and do the, you know, the unmount mount operation, for example, that requires somebody with OS level access. So there's some challenges there, right? And you have to decide how far do you want to take this automation? Because obviously opening up automation to then, you know, actually get inside of of your resources and configure them that way, that provides additional
1: additional risk. So we need to balance these concerns. There's really so much depth here. And when you think about a modern business who's operating their business on one or many cloud providers like AWS, Azure or GCP, there's so many different security and compliance concerns. That they have to deal with. What advice do you have for teams in terms of what skills they should be learning to best avoid and deal with these problems that you're mentioning? It's a deep question. So, you know, one thing I w- would always
2: recommend is being a little bit conservative in adopting new services within a cloud provider, and you know, taking that a little bit slowly, and really making sure that as you adopt services, you have, you know, you're able to develop expertise internally, right? Understand what you're deploying. So I would say even before we get into infrastructures, code and automation and all of that, like understand the services that you're using and, you know, nobody likes to just sit and read the documentation, right? But it, it is an important step in the process, I think, is stopping and, and understanding, okay, here's how the service works. Here are the controls that it provides to me. You know, if we think back to the fairly recent, like deprecation and, and shutting down of ec 2 classic, for example, right? Understanding the constraints of that before it was shut down is something that I think, you know, would have been important when that button was still enabled, you could just create a, an EC2 classic instance. And it's, you know, it's on the internet by default, you know, knowing that that is an attribute of that is an important thing to have, right? That knowledge is is valuable. So that's sort of the first step, I think, just understanding that. And you, you really can't go dive into infrastructure's code and like build these things out and configure them until you really know what you're configuring. I know a lot of teams that operate in a way where they sort of have a sandbox environment and they'll go in and click through the console and and build out a service and then try to figure out what the options are and then port that back to infrastructure's code and try to, you know, make that the configuration that's deployed. And, you know, that's a little bit dangerous as well, because often this sort of point and click, you know, templatized versions are configured in suboptimal ways from a security standpoint or even an operational standpoint, and you end up sort of dragging those, that baggage along with you, right? So being a little bit careful there. But then I think, you know, on the other side, you know, if we think about software engineering and some of the practices that like were taken from software engineering and operations through the whole DevOps movement, and we should lint our configurations and, and we should have, you know, tests and continuous integration, right? I think thinking about those things as well, anybody that's working in ops and, and security really should be familiar with those practices. And, you know, especially on the security end of things, it's important to understand what you're securing so i think getting ingrained in those processes and you know you should be able to write a little bit of code you should be able to write terraform and you should be able to understand how those services work because it's very difficult to operate a thing if you don't know how it works i think it's also very difficult to secure a thing if you don't know how it works so i would recommend you know learning any of those tools especially if you're on one end of that spectrum and you're tasked with securing a system that is configured and you know Operate it with a tool set that you have no familiarity with. It's a bit of an uphill battle. So, very general advice, but that's kind of where I would start. And I would also say, you know, keep it simple. Nobody likes a big Rube Goldberg machine. And especially from a security and, a, and an audit standpoint, it's very hard to unwind systems that are built that way. So, start simple and make sure that you can really
1: understand what you're building
2: as you build it out.
1: Baby steps. You got to crawl before you walk, before you run. And I think that's really good advice. So Kyle, we're getting towards the end of our time here, and I have one more question for you today. What's the best way for folks to learn more about what Opshelm is doing? How should they connect with you?
2: Yeah, of course. I think our website's probably the the default destination there, opshelm.com. I'm sure there'll be a link provided, but that's O-P-S-H-E-L-M.com. And feel free to connect with us there. And we've got a blog as well be pushing some content out too, especially, you know, security related content. So be sharing our thoughts and, and things there. So yeah, please come in and engage with us.
1: Kyle McCullough from Opshelm, thank you so much for coming on Software Engineering Daily.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me.